0: Some account of the life of John Wycliffe DD part 2 This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Another still more important labour of Wycliffe claims our attention his translation of the scriptures into the english tongue which occupied him for many years it was completed in 1383 the first honour of this great undertaking clearly belongs to wycliffe and no event recorded in the annals of our land can be compared with it for importance the attempts made by others had neither been numerous nor extensive they were only versions of the psalms and some other portions of sacred writ and detract not from the labour or merit of wycliffe's performance a well-known passage from the historical work of knighton a canon of leicester the contemporary of wycliffe contains evidence upon this subject too decisive not to be repeated here he says christ delivered his gospel to the clergy and doctors of the church that they might administer to the laity and to weaker persons according to the state of the times and the wants of man but this master john wycliffe translated it out of latin into english and thus laid it more open to the laity and to women who can read than it formerly had been to the most learned of the clergy even to those of them who had the best understanding and in this way the gospel pearl is cast abroad and trodden under foot of swine and that which was before precious both to clergy and laity is rendered as it were the common jest of both The jewel of the church is turned into the sport of the people, and what was hitherto the principal gift of the clergy and divines is made for ever common to the laity. The cautious English historian of modern Romanists impresses the same opinion as Knighton, though in more guarded language. He says, Wycliffe made a new translation of the scriptures, multiplied the copies with the aid of transcribers, and by his poor priests recommended it to the perusal of their hearers in their hands it became an engine of wonderful power men were flattered by the appeal to their private judgment the new doctrines insensibly acquired partisans and protectors in the higher classes who alone were acquainted with the use of letters a spirit of inquiry was generated and the seeds were sown of that religious revolution which in little more than a century astonished and convulsed the nations of europe in conformity to these apprehensions the advocates of the church of rome have ever denounced in terms more or less measured all attempts to communicate to the people in their own tongues the wonderful works of god for the salvation of a guilty world the diffusion of this light and knowledge they well know will certainly bring the fabric of ecclesiastical domination to the dust and therefore the church of rome has ever objected to allow free perusal of the scriptures to the laity but a spirit of inquiry had been awakened and wycliffe well knew that no method could be devised so effectual for making men wise unto salvation as to supply them with the scriptures what assistance he had in this work is not known but it is evident that copies were multiplied with a rapidity which we can hardly appreciate at the present day from the register of almwick bishop of norwich in fourteen twenty nine it appears that the cost of a testament of wycliffe's version was two pounds sixteen shillings eight pence equal to more than twenty pounds of our present money at that time five pounds were considered a sufficient allowance for the annual maintenance of a tradesman yeoman or a curate in the persecution under bishop longland in fifteen twenty one when severe penalties perhaps death followed the merely possessing such a work the accusation against one man was his having paid twenty shillings for a bible in english probably only some detached books. This translation was made from the Latin Vulgate. Scarcely any persons then were acquainted with the original languages of the scriptures. Wycliffe took considerable pains to collect copies and procured as correct a text as possible for his version. The circulation of the English scriptures was so offensive to the clergy that in 1390 the prelates brought forward a bill in the House of Lords for suppressing Wycliffe's translations. The Duke of Lancaster is said to have interfered on this occasion, boldly declaring, We will not be the dregs of all, seeing that other nations have the law of God, which is the law of our faith, written in their own language. He added that he would maintain our having the divine law in our own tongue against those, whoever they should be, who first brought in the bill. The Duke being seconded by others, the bill was thrown out three years previously in thirteen eighty seven a severe statute had been revived at oxford which is thus described in a prologue for the english bible written by one of wycliffe's followers alas the greatest abomination that ever was heard among christian clerks is now purposed in england by worldly clerks and feigned religious and in the chief university of our realm as many true men tell with great wailing this horrible and devilish cursedness is purposed of christ's enemies and traitors of all christian people that no man shall learn divinity or holy writ but he that hath done his form in art that is who hath commenced in arts and hath been regent two years after thus it would be nine or ten years before he might learn holy writ the subsequent and more successful endeavours of the romish clergy to prevent the circulation of the english scriptures will be noticed in the account of the followers of wycliffe in thirteen eighty one the troubles broke out among the commons known as the insurrections of watt tyler and others a very slight acquaintance with the history of england sufficiently explains the causes of these tumultuary proceedings which were wholly unconnected with the doctrines or labours of wycliffe who, in his writings, strongly urged the due subordination of different ranks of men, nor should it be forgotten that tumults of a far more sanguinary description and marked by deeper atrocities had about this period raged in France and Flanders, where the doctrines of our reformer were unknown for, ça, a contemporary historian, attributes the proceedings of the English insurgents to the example set them on the continent other atrocious deeds perpetrated as national acts in neighbouring countries within our own recollection might be referred to were it at all needful to show that tumults and rebellions are not the results of opposition to popery but it ever has been a favourite plan of that church to endeavour dexterously to fasten upon its adversaries the blame which properly appertains to itself wycliffe's opposition to the dogma of transubstantiation is now to be noticed This doctrine was first openly maintained in the West by Radbert, a French monk in the ninth century, but it was not fully sanctioned by the Church of Rome till the Third Lateran Council under Innocent III in 1215. So doubtful had the popes been at first respecting this doctrine, that one of them feigned a revelation from the Virgin in opposition to it. One of the Saxon homilies thus states the doctrine held by the early English Church upon this subject. Much difference is between the body Christ suffered in and the body hallowed to housel, the sacrament. This latter, being only his spiritual body, gathered of many corns, without blood or bone, without limb, without soul, and therefore nothing is to be understood therein bodily, but all is to be spiritually understood. Transubstantiation was not held by the Anglo-Saxon church, but had been introduced after the Norman conquest by Lanfranc, Archbishop of Canterbury, Wycliffe had touched upon this subject in some of his treatises, the most popular of which his wicket forms a part of the present volume, but he brought his views forward with increased activity in his divinity lectures during the spring of 1381, when he published a series of conclusions in which he called the attention of members of the university to the subject. In these he stated that the consecrated host which we see upon the altar is neither Christ nor any part of him, but an effectual sign of him on these conclusions wycliffe offered to dispute publicly in his Trialogus, lib four chapter seven wycliffe represents satan as reasoning thus respecting transubstantiation should i once so far beguile the faithful of the church by the aid of antichrist my vice-regent as to persuade them to deny that this sacrament is bread and to induce them to regard it merely as an accident there will be nothing then which i may not bring them to receive since there can be nothing more opposite to the scriptures or to common discernment let the life of a prelate then be what it may let him be guilty of luxury simony or murder the people may be led to believe that really he is no such man nay they may then be persuaded to admit that the pope is infallible at least with respect to the matters of christian faith and that inasmuch as he is known by the name of most holy father he is of course free from sin how completely had the powerful mind of wycliffe discerned the dreadful consequences of this monstrous doctrine which represents a piece of bread as containing the flesh and blood and even the soul and divine nature of our blessed lord a convention of romish doctors speedily assembled the doctrines of wycliffe were condemned as may easily be supposed sentences of excommunication and imprisonment were fulminated against all members of the university who should teach his tenants or even be convicted of listening to arguments in defence of them this assembly was held in private. Its determination was communicated to Wycliffe while engaged in lecturing his pupils. He paused for a moment, and then again challenged his opponents to a fair discussion of the subject, declaring that if attempts were made to silence him by force, he would appeal to the king for protection. Courtenay, who had been recently appointed Archbishop of Canterbury in May 1382, called a synod to consider respecting certain strange and dangerous opinions then widely diffused, among both the nobility and the commons of england his well-known hatred to wycliffe sufficiently indicated the objects in view the synod was held at the grey friars in london it had scarcely assembled when the city was shaken by an earthquake which the members interpreted as evidence of the divine displeasure at the objects for which they were then collected but courtney was not a slave to superstitious fears he comforted them by putting them in mind that they should not be slothful in the cause of the church that the earthquake in reality portended a cleansing of the kingdom from heresies, for as air and noxious spirits are shut up in the bowels of the earth, which are expelled in an earthquake, and so the earth is cleansed, but not without great violence, so there were many heresies shut up in the hearts of reprobate men, but by the condemnation of them the kingdom has been cleared, but not without irksomeness and great commotion the assembled divines were thus reassured and the conclusions imputed to wycliffe were condemned as erroneous and heretical the sentence denounced against all who should hold preach or defend his tenants was promulgated with the usual solemnities and addressed to all places subject to the see of canterbury these fulminations were communicated to the university of oxford but the chancellor and many of its leading members were attached to the reformer and the public discourse before the university highly commended the character and doctrines of wycliffe the state of public affairs strengthened the efforts of the clergy a few months before they had procured the enactment of a law by the parliament which provided for the punishment of those who preached what the ecclesiastics denominated heresy the preamble of the statute evidently refers to the labours of the followers of wycliffe and to the promulgation of such doctrines as he advanced they were extensively diffused a contemporary historian represents every second person in the kingdom as infected with his heresies and in wycliffe's confession respecting the sacrament he implies that a third part of the clergy held similar opinions the statute sets forth that divers evil persons Went from county to county and town to town, in certain habits, under dissimulation of great holiness, without license of the ordinaries or other authorities, preaching daily, not only in churches and churchyards, but also in markets, fairs, and other open places where great congregations were assembled, diverse sermons containing heresies and notorious errors, etc., etc it was therefore enacted that all such preachers and also their favourers maintainers and abettors should be arrested and held in strong prison till they justify themselves according to the law and reason of holy church before the prelates this law was passed by the lords but never had the assent of the commons so that in reality it was both informal and invalid in the following october it was revoked and laid aside but the archbishop procured letters patent from the king whereby he and his suffragans were authorized to detain all such offenders in their own prisons and by the artifices of the prelate the act of repeal was suppressed this was the commencement of a series of bloody enactments whereby the consciences of englishmen were enthralled and the best and holiest characters of the land were subjected to the severest persecution and most horrible cruelties no traces of such laws appear previously on our statute-book and these notoriously emanated from the romish priesthood on feeling their craft to be in danger. It is evident that they proceeded not from the peculiar opinions of that day, or the maxims of state policy then prevalent, but entirely from the fiend-like desire of the popish ecclesiastics to persecute for conscience' sake. Courtney, having arranged his machinery for persecution, summoned Rigg, the Chancellor of Oxford, and Brightwell, one of his doctors, to answer for their late conduct respecting Hereford and Rippington, who had advocated the cause of Wycliffe. After some hesitation they were induced to assent to the articles lately sanctioned by the Synod. The Chancellor was enjoined to search for Wycliffe, Hereford, Rippington, Ashton, and Redman, and by ecclesiastical censures, and canonical penalties, to compel them to abjure. Meanwhile the Archbishop proceeded in his persecution of Hereford and Ashton. The former had assisted Wycliffe in his translation of the Scriptures. The latter was well known throughout the kingdom as a laborious and successful preacher of the Gospel. Wycliffe then resided at Lutterworth. In one of his sermons he refers to these persecutions, speaking of Courtney as the great Bishop of England, who is incensed because God's law is written in English to unlearned men. He adds, He pursueth a certain priest, because he writeth to men this English, and summoneth him, and travaileth him, so that it is hard for him to bear it. And thus he pursueth another priest, by the help of Pharisees, because he preacheth Christ's gospel freely, without fables hereford appears to have escaped from the bitterness of death probably through the influence of the duke of lancaster but he outwardly at least reconciled himself to his opponents as he was among the clergy who in thirteen ninety one sat in judgment upon one of the lollards named walter brute though he still retained an attachment to the doctrines of wycliffe Rippington acted in a similar manner, but Ashton died as he had lived, a follower of the truth, before the clergy had proceeded so far as openly to bring the Lollards to the stake. The accounts respecting these men, however, are contradictory, and their enemies appear to have attributed to them greater concessions than they really made, a practice not unfrequent with the Church of Rome. Some further particulars respecting them will be found in another part of this work. The conduct of the clergy and the means they had recourse to are thus described by wycliffe in one of his discourses at this period our high priests and our religious fear them lest god's law after all they have done should be quickened therefore make their statutes stable as a rock and they obtain grace favour of knights to confirm them and this they mark well with the witness of lords and all lest the truth of god's law should break out to the knowing of the common people well, I know that knights have taken gold in this case, to help that thy law may be thus hid, and thine ordinances consumed. Wycliffe saw the storm gathering fast, while increasing age and infirmities rendered him less able to counteract the proceedings of his adversaries. He knew not how soon the blow might be struck. Thus situated, he resolved to appeal to the King and Parliament in the form of a petition this document contains opinions for which some protestant writers have too hastily been inclined to censure the reformer without considering the situation in which matters then stood or the characters whom wycliffe denounced as worldly priests and of the congregation of satan the proceedings against wycliffe are not very clearly stated but it appears that in thirteen eighty two a council of prelates and clergy was held in the church of the preaching friars at london as already mentioned and a similar council was afterwards assembled at oxford to take measures for remedying certain disorders which were extending rapidly through the whole community courtney having made the requisite preparations wycliffe was summoned to appear that he might answer for his opinions the romish prelate laid his plans so as to deprive wycliffe of the support and countenance he had hitherto received while the nobility opposed the church on points of worldly interest they gladly encouraged wycliffe in his opposition though it originated from higher sources than those of a secular nature but at this critical period the duke of lancaster felt that it was his interest to avoid further hostilities with the clergy and as courtney had placed the matters at issue on points of doctrine the duke advised wycliffe to submit to the prelates in all points of that nature here human aid failed the reformer as might be expected the world may contend upon subjects of a religious nature when interest is concerned, but not when there is reason to expect only trouble and loss for so doing. Had Wycliffe then shrunk from the contest, had he sacrificed the truth to avoid the risk of encountering his adversaries, there might have been some ground for characterizing him as a political reformer, even though the hesitation had proceeded from age and infirmity rather than from any other source, but he shrunk not. The Romish historian Walsingham, who is ever desirous to cast any disgrace he can upon the reformer represents him as equally withstanding the commands of the duke and the threats of the primate he says that wycliffe in publicly defending his doctrines on the sacrament of the altar like an obstinate heretic refuted all the doctors of the second millennium wycliffe did not consider the doctrine of transubstantiation to be a mere dogma of the schools he viewed it as a worshipping of the creature more than the creator and perceived all its attendant consequences of setting up will-worship and other mediators than the lord jesus christ the assembly convoked at oxford by whom wycliffe's doctrines were condemned was numerous and eminent for rank and authority he stood alone in the place where he once had delivered the doctrines of truth to approving auditories but now he was forsaken with the apostle paul he might have said at mine answer no man stood with me but all men forsook me with that apostle he experienced that the lord stood by him and strengthened him and he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion His defence, as we have seen, was such as to demand praise from his adversaries, and his written confessions recapitulated his former views upon the subject. There were two, one in Latin, in which he argued the subject after the scholastic method, the other in English, which he drew up so as to be intelligible to the people. Courtney and his associates probably felt at a loss how to act towards the reformer, as yet they had not found any who resisted unto blood, nor had they arrived at the decision with which their successors put the summary requisition turn or burn. They appear at that time to have contented themselves with terminating Wycliffe's connection with the University of Oxford. A mandate from the King was addressed to the Vice-Chancellor dated July 1382, ordering the expulsion of Wycliffe and his adherents from the University within seven days. Probably the increasing age and infirmities of the reformer indicated his speedy removal from this world, and inclined his enemies to suspend more violent and unpopular measures. The next proceeding was a summons from the Pope ordering Wycliffe to appear before him at Rome. He was too much afflicted with paralysis to undertake such a journey, even had it been a desirable plan for him to adopt. He addressed a letter to the Pope, professing his faith, expressing his willingness to retract any opinions which might be proved to be erroneous, and his hope that personal appearance before the pontiff would not be insisted upon. Although Wycliffe was excluded from Oxford, and age advanced rapidly upon him, he did not cease to labor for the welfare of the souls of men. His translation of the scriptures was completed about this period. The greater part also of his tracts and sermons appear to have been composed during the latter years of his life they were written out and circulated with avidity the numerous copies of his writings yet remaining show the extent to which they must have been transcribed especially when we consider that the romish clergy destroyed not a few among these pieces is an address written against the friars in which commenting on the text beware of the leaven of the pharisees which is hypocrisy wycliffe directs against the followers of st francis and st dominic of that day these censures addressed to the pharisees of judea of old the reformers feelings of abhorrence at the proceedings of the mendicants had been renewed by their activity in behalf of pope urban against his opponent pope clement each of the popes endeavoured to stimulate his adherents to take up arms against his rival by the same promises of spiritual blessings and the same denunciations of divine wrath as had been used to obtain supporters to the crusades or military expeditions for the recovery of the holy land from the infidels These military expeditions were represented as equally meritorious, and were designated by the same title, while all the nefarious practices employed in support of the Crusades were employed on the present occasion. The Bishop of Norwich raised a considerable army by the bulls of Pope Urban, promising full remission of sins and a place in paradise to all who assisted his cause by money or in person. This military prelate headed his troops and invaded France, by which kingdom Pope Clement was supported but his campaign was unsuccessful he returned to england in a few months with the scanty remains of his army and was the subject of general derision against such proceedings wycliffe spoke boldly he says christ is a good shepherd for he puts his own life for the saving of the sheep but antichrist is a ravening wolf for he ever does the reverse putting many thousand lives for his own wretched life by forsaking things which christ has bid his priests forsake he might end all this strife Why is he not a fiend stained foul with homicide, who, though a priest, fights in such a cause? If man slaying in others be odious to God, much more in priests who should be the vicars of Christ? And I am certain that neither the Pope nor all the men of his council can produce a spark of reason to prove that he should do this. Wycliffe speaks of the two Popes as fighting one against the other, with the most blasphemous leasings or falsehoods that ever sprang out of hell but they were occupied he adds many years before in blasphemy and in sinning against god and his church and this made them to sin more as an ambling blind horse when he beginneth to stumble continues to stumble until he casts himself down several passages written by wycliffe at this time express his condemnation of all warfare unless in self-defence and as sanctioned by the new testament the scenes of slaughter cruelty and profligacy occasioned by this papal schism are related by historians the danger incurred by wycliffe in his proceedings now was greater than ever but he pursued his course with steadfastness to the end the language of his conduct has been well described as being to this effect to live and to be silent is with me impossible the guilt of such treason against the lord of heaven is more to be dreaded than many deaths let the blow therefore fall enough i know of the men whom i oppose of the times on which i am thrown and of the mysterious providence which relates to our sinful race to expect that the stroke will ere long descend but my purpose is unalterable i wait its coming the stroke however was stayed the duke of lancaster still acted as the patron of wycliffe the popes were occupied by their mutual contests the political distractions of england absorbed the attention of all the leading characters and wycliffe was permitted to pass the short remainder of his days without interruption from the hand of violence he had also a constant patroness in anne of bohemia queen of richard the second who was eminent for her piety and blameless conduct for two years previously to his decease wycliffe was paralytic and had the assistance of a curate named purvey who partook of his master's sentiments but he continued himself to officiate it is said that he was engaged in distributing the bread of the lord's supper when seized with the last and fatal attack of paralysis he was at once deprived of consciousness and the power of speech after a brief struggle, his spirit left the earth and found a joyful refuge in another and a better world. He was taken ill on the twenty-ninth and died on the thirty-first of December, thirteen eighty-four. Wycliffe was buried in peace, but in the year fourteen fifteen the Council of Constance ordered his remains to be disinterred and cast forth from consecrated ground. This was not enforced until fourteen twenty-eight, when by command of the Pope, forty-four years after his interment, his bones were digged up, and burnt to ashes, which were then cast into the brook hard by. Fox observes, And so was he resolved into three elements, earth, fire, and water, they thinking thereby to abolish both the name and doctrine of Wycliffe ever, Not much unlike to the example of the old Pharisees and sepulchre knights, who, when they had brought the Lord to the grave, thought to make him sure never to rise again. But these and all others must know that As there is no counsel against the Lord, so there is no keeping down of verity, but it will spring and come out of dust and ashes, as appeared right well in this man. For though they digged up his body, burnt his bones, and drowned his ashes, yet the word of God and truth of his doctrine, with the fruit and success thereof, they could not burn, which yet to this day, for the most part of his articles, do remain, notwithstanding the transitory body and bones of the man was thus consumed and dispersed. Some further observations on this treatment of the remains of this principal reformer, with a brief account of his principal disciples, and a sketch of the measures progressively adopted for the suppression of the truths he had advocated, will be found in another part of the present volume. His writings and the doctrines he taught now claim our attention. Writings OF Wycliffe. Soon after the decease of Wycliffe, an English prelate stated that the writings of the reformer were as voluminous as those of Augustine. Those which are still extant would make several large volumes and embrace a great variety of subjects. Bale, who wrote a century and a half subsequent to Wycliffe's death, states that he had seen more than a hundred and fifty of his works, partly in Latin and partly in English, and that he had ascertained the titles of more than a hundred others. Many of the latter, however, most probably were only different names for pieces which Bale had seen, for amongst the manuscripts yet existing the same pieces sometimes designated by more than one title. Lewis has transcribed Bale's catalogue, noticing the pieces he was acquainted with and adding others which increased the list to nearly three hundred. The catalogue given by Baber is more correct. It is drawn up with much care, from a personal examination of many of the works of Wycliffe and contains about one hundred and eighty articles but the list of Wycliffe's writings most useful to the general reader has been compiled by Vaughan, who with much personal labor examined the writings of the reformer yet in existence, and made himself better acquainted with their contents than any other person appears to have done during the last four centuries. It is not difficult to ascertain that the principal works attributed to Wycliffe are his genuine productions. Many are expressly mentioned in the public documents, intended to suppress his opinions, while others possess sufficient internal evidence printing had not then been discovered, copies could only be increased by the slow process of writing, while his enemies were indefatigable in their endeavours to destroy them. Yet the copies were so numerous and so much valued that nearly the whole of his writings are still extant, a sufficient proof, if any were wanting, that the doctrines he taught were widely diffused and highly esteemed. Nor was this confined to England. Copies are also found in public libraries on the continent. Subbingo lepus bishop of prague burned more than two hundred volumes many of which were richly adorned the property of persons of the higher classes in bohemia it also appears that the greater part of the writings of wycliffe that have not come down to us treated of philosophical or scholastic subjects which would be little prized except by the students of that period while the copies of wycliffe's writings which remain seem to have been preserved by the laity many of these are large volumes which could not have been written without much labor and cost We may suppose they were prepared under the direction of some of his powerful supporters, while their plain appearance, contrasted with that of many of the highly adorned volumes written at that period, shows that the contents formed the chief value of the estimation of their possessors, nor do they seem to have been the workmanship of the religious establishments of that day. In one of Wycliffe's homilies he complains of the endeavours of the clergy to prevent the circulation of the English scriptures, and adds, but one comfort is of knights, that they savour esteem much the gospel and have will to read in english the gospel of christ's life another and even more interesting class of the wycliffe manuscripts are the little books written with much less elegance but which evidently were designed for the solace and instruction of souls thirsting in secret for the waters of life the tattered and well-used appearance of many of these small volumes is an indisputable testimony to the correctness of the allegations in the bishop's registers of the next two centuries as to the manner in which these pestilent books were read by the followers of the truth till by the invention of printing copious supplies of other religious tracts were brought forward Wycliffe's principal work the translation of the scriptures has been already noticed copies of the whole or of detached portions are found in several public and in some private libraries a very beautiful and perfect specimen is preserved in the royal library of the british museum the new testament has been printed in seventeen thirty one and eighteen ten but being a literal reprint in the original orthography it is only calculated for libraries specimens of his version will be found at page forty five as a work for popular use Wycliffe's bible is now of course wholly superseded by later translations the triologus is the work next in importance it contains a series of dialogues between three persons characterized as aletheia or truth Psoides or falsehood and phrenesis or wisdom truth represents a sound divine and states questions falsehood urges the objections of an unbeliever wisdom decides as a subtle theologian this work probably contains the substance of wycliffe's divinity lectures with considerable additions it embraces almost every doctrine connected with the theology of that day treated however in the scholastic form then universal although very unattractive to modern readers it was doubtless a useful and important work as turner observes it was the respected academician reasoning with the ideas of the reformer It is evident that Wycliffe wrote this work under a decided impression that his efforts for the truth were likely to be crowned with martyrdom. It was printed in 1524. Copies are rare, for this work was actively sought for by the Romanists and destroyed. A specimen will be found in a subsequent page. The following remark of Baber is but too applicable to the method in which this work is written the scholastic theology which was taught at this period was a species of divinity which obscured the excellence and perverted the utility of that sacred science by the introduction of this jargon of the schoolman philosophical abstraction and subtlety had superseded that unaffected simplicity and engaging plainness with which the primitive teachers of christianity explained the doctrines of salvation Thus, although Wycliffe in the Trilogus vanquished the opponents of the truth with their own weapons, it was not calculated to be a work of general utility, like his more popular tracts in the English language. A good summary of the contents of the Trilogus is given by Vaughan. Only one other of Wycliffe's writings appears to have been printed at the period of the Reformation, his Wicket, a small treatise on the Lord's Supper, which will be found in the present collection this was among the most influential of his works as appears from the frequent mention of it in those records of persecution the bishop's registers his treatise of the truth of scripture is a very valuable performance it is in latin only two manuscript copies are known to exist one in the bodleian library at oxford the other at trinity college dublin the latter is the preferable copy and is described as containing two hundred and forty-four large double-columned pages of nearly a thousand words in a page it would therefore be equal in contents to a common octavo of more than 700 pages. It abounds in contractions, but is fairly and legibly written. Fox, the martyrologist, possessed a copy which he intended to translate and print. Vaughan describes this work as embodying almost every sentiment peculiar to the reformer. James made considerable use of its contents in his Apology for Wycliffe, but it was neglected by Lewis. An accurate reprint with a correct translation would be exceedingly valuable. The extent of this piece wholly precluded insertion in the present collection, even in an abridged form. Another useful and popular work in its day was the Poor caitiff. This is a collection of English tracts, which were widely circulated. Several copies of the whole, or of detached portions, are in existence, but only a few sentences from its pages have hitherto been printed. This neglect has probably arisen from the little reference it contains to the controversies in which Wycliffe was constantly engaged, and to which perhaps an undue prominence has been given by Lewis and other early biographers. This valuable memorial of the Reformation will be found in the present volume. Many of Wycliffe's homilies or postiles have been preserved. They appear rather to have been written down by his hearers than to be finished copies prepared by himself. See page 24. Wycliffe's other writings need not here be mentioned minutely. His Memorial to the King and Parliament and Objections of Friars were printed by James. Some of his small tracts have been printed by Lewis and Vaughan, to whose lists of the reformers' writings, particularly the latter, the reader may be referred. Many of these smaller pieces are in the British Museum, in the libraries of Trinity College, Dublin, and Trinity College, Cambridge. In the library of Corpus Christi College, in the latter university, among the valuable collection of manuscripts, The Gift of Archbishop Parker, is a volume containing many of the controversial pieces. The following note is prefixed. In this book are gathered together all the sharp treatises concerning the errors and defaults which John Wycliffe did find in his time, especially in the clergy and religious and in other estates of the world at the period when wycliffe wrote the english language had begun to recover from the disuse into which it had fallen from the time of the conquest many french and other foreign words and phrases were introduced by the higher ranks who chiefly used the french language but the lower orders adhered more closely to the saxon phraseology mr baber observes those of the works of wycliffe written by him in his vernacular tongue will be perused with interest and admiration by every one curious in the history of the english language for wycliffe's english will i apprehend be found upon strict examination to be more pure than that of contemporary writers wycliffe when he wrote in his native tongue did it not for the benefit of courtiers and scholars but for the instruction of the less learned portion of the people he therefore as much as possible rejected all strange english and was studious to express himself in a diction simple and unadorned at the same time avoiding the charge of a barbarous and familiar phraseology the use of english instead of barbarous latin in so large a portion of his writings gave much efficacy to the exertions for the spiritual welfare of his countrymen a specimen of Wycliffe's writings in their original orthography will be found in two extracts from his version of the old testament in the following pages at first they will appear hardly intelligible to the reader unaccustomed to the writings of that day but on closer examination it will be found that if the saxon terminations expletives and a few peculiar words are removed the language is as it has been well characterized undefiled english in fact very similar to the language of our rural districts at the present day to have printed Wycliffe's tracts exactly in the form in which they were written would have rendered them useless for the purposes of the present collection it was necessary to remove some of the peculiarities just adverted to but further the editor had no wish to proceed and he felt the necessity of retaining the precise words of the original whenever they would convey the meaning of the reformer to the general reader how far the attempt has been successful it is for those to say who may compare the present edition with the original manuscripts he will only add that it was not an easy task for the labor and the responsibility incurred the pieces included in this volume which have not hitherto been printed were copied from the originals expressly for the present collection many others were selected for the same purpose but the limits of the work prevented their insertion it is deeply to be regretted that a complete edition of wycliffe's writings never has been printed such a monument is due to the illustrious individual to whom we perhaps are indebted more than to any other for the gospel light and religious liberty we enjoy milton says a good book is the precious life-blood of a master spirit embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life surely the writings of Wycliffe ought not to be suffered to perish a much smaller sum than in many instances has been vainly expended in monumental attempts to preserve the remembrance of persons whose names in a few short years have been almost entirely forgotten would suffice to complete a national memorial record of our great reformer more lasting than brass. But blessed be the Most High, when we look around in every circumstance which endears to us the Protestant faith of our land, we are reminded of John Wycliffe. To use the words of Henry Wharton, Wycliffe was a man than whom the Christian world in these last ages has not produced a greater, and who seems to have been placed as much above praise as he is above envy. DOCTRINES TAUGHT BY WYCLiffe the doctrines taught by wycliffe have been continually misrepresented by papists and often misunderstood by protestants they may be stated as follows wycliffe's faith was derived from the scriptures he considered them as a divine revelation containing a sufficient and perfect rule of christian belief and practice the authority of scripture he esteemed to be superior to any other writing or to any tradition he considered the canonical books alone as inspired he urged that all truth is contained in scripture and that no record was to be allowed unless sanctioned by the sacred records the pope's authority or right to interfere in temporal concerns he wholly rejected and considered that it was only to be admitted in other respects when conformable to scripture he maintained that the pope might err in doctrine as well as in life the church of christ he considered to be the universal congregation of those predestinated to life eternal the church of rome he considered not to be superior in authority to any other he did not allow that the pope was head of the church and opposed the extravagant authority claimed by the hierarchy considering it as antichrist whether usurped by the pope or the clergy at large while he strongly urged the respect due to consistent and holy ministers of the word he urged that the clergy ought not to be accounted lords over God's heritage, but as ministers and stewards of their heavenly master. He supported the king's supremacy over all persons, even ecclesiastics, in temporal matters. He never taught any doctrine contrary to the legal rights of property. He sometimes mentions these sacraments as seven, but only lays stress upon two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of the others he spoke so lightly as to be accused by his enemies of rejecting them his opinion of the lord's supper is stated in his wicket and his confession the doctrine of transubstantiation he wholly rejected he approved outward worship and public assembling for that purpose but condemned the superstitious rites of the romish church he disapproved the church music then esteemed which was elaborate often trifling and opposed to devotional feeling he admitted the doctrine of purgatory that early error but rejected the most corrupt and profitable part of the fable that the sufferings of purgatory may be shortened by the prayers of men or the intercessions of saints according to his statements it was rather the doctrine of an intermediate state than the popish purgatory which he condemns as pious falsehood as he advanced in life his views on this subject became more clear and scriptural see extract from dr james page one o nine In Wycliffe's tract, Of the Church of Christ, Her Members, and Her Governance, he says, The second part of the church are saints in purgatory, and these sin not anew, but purge their old sins, and many errors are fallen in praying for these saints. And since they are all dead in body, Christ's words may be taken of them, Let us follow Christ in our life, and let the dead bury the dead. This widely differs from the doctrine of the Church of Rome, thus determined in the Council of Trent the souls detained in purgatory are assisted by the suffrages prayers of the faithful and most especially by the acceptable sacrifice of the altar he allowed the memory of the saints to be honoured but only that men might be excited to imitate their example not as objects of worship he denied the efficacy of their mediation asserting that the lord jesus christ is the only mediator pilgrimages he wholly disapproved and the worship of images he frequently condemns the doctrines of papal indulgences and pardons He condemned in the strongest terms as encouragements to sin. He also objected to sanctuaries as affording impunity to crime. He held that absolution or forgiveness of sins belonged to God alone. He condemned the celibacy imposed by the Church of Rome upon its clergy. His opinions respecting the papacy are stated at page 184. Wycliffe is accused of wishing to deprive the Church of its property by what he has said upon the subject of tithes his views were simply these it is reasonable that the priest should have a suitable provision besides the mere necessaries of food and raiment he allowed that dimes or tithes and offerings are god's part and that priests should live on them but he urges that the principal cause for which tithes and offerings should be paid was curates teaching their parishioners in word and example when however the curates were wicked and neglected their duty he considered that the tithes might be withheld from them though they ought to be devoted to the service of god it should not be forgotten that the priesthood then taught that men should have the divine blessing in this life and heaven hereafter if they duly paid their tithes and offerings the reader who wishes a fuller account of wycliffe's opinion upon this subject may refer to his biographers he condemned the blasphemous adjurations then so common this has occasioned his being misrepresented as asserting that judicial oaths were unlawful, whereas he expressly declares that it is lawful to make oath by God Almighty in a needful case. Of the election of grace he thus speaks in his Trilogus, We are predestinated that we may obtain divine acceptance and become holy, having received that grace through Christ's taking human nature, whereby we are rendered finally pleasing to God and it appears that this grace which is called the grace of predestination or the charity of final perseverance cannot by any means fail on the great doctrines of justification and merit dr james quotes passages which prove wycliffe to have taught that faith in our lord jesus christ is sufficient for salvation and that without faith it is impossible to please god that the merit of christ is able by itself to redeem all mankind from hell and that this sufficiency is to be understood without any other cause concurring. He persuaded men, therefore, to trust wholly to Christ, to rely altogether upon his sufferings, not to seek to be justified but by his righteousness, and that by participation in his righteousness all men are righteous. Dr. James adds, in the doctrine of merits, Wycliffe was neither Pelagian nor Papist, he beateth down all these proud Pharisees, who say that God did not all for them, but think that their merits help wycliffe says heal us lord for nought that is no merit of ours but for thy mercy lord not to our merits but to thy mercy give thy joy give us grace to know that all thy gifts are of thy goodness our flesh though it seem holy yet it is not holy we all are originally sinners as adam and in adam his leprosy cleaveth faster to us than naaman's did to gehazi for according to his teaching we are all sinners not only from our birth but before so that we cannot so much as think a good thought unless jesus the angel of great counsel send it nor perform a good work unless it be properly his good work his mercy comes before us that we receive grace and followeth us helping us and keeping us in grace so then it is not good for us to trust in our merits in our virtues in our righteousness but to conclude this point good it is only to trust in god the foregoing summary of doctrines taught by wycliffe is taken from the statements of baber vaughan james and lewis who quote passages confirmatory of every point in their works the reader will find those references the limits of these pages do not allow them to be inserted here in any form which could be useful the reader should also again be reminded that he must not expect to find all these opinions clearly set forth in every part of wycliffe's writings dr james speaking of the countenance some passages give to prayer to saints and the virgin observes i am persuaded that he retracted these opinions in his latter and more learned works if ever it be god's pleasure that his works which were cut and mangled and scattered worse than absurdus's limbs were in the poet may be brought forth and set together again that we may have the whole body of his learned and religious works and be able to distinguish the time and order wherein he wrote then, I say, we should receive due satisfaction on this point. Vaughan has done much to settle the dates of Wycliffe's writings, and has thereby shown his gradual and satisfactory progress on several points. We must not expect to find in Wycliffe's writings a finished system of doctrine. Many of his statements, taken separately, perhaps will appear incorrect, but take them as a whole, and we shall be convinced that he well merited his glorious title, the Gospel Doctor for the variations which exist as dr james observes considering the times wherein and the persons with whom he lived he may easily obtain pardon of any impartial reader h wharton justly observes these variations do not detract from him they show that his opposition to romish errors was directed by a matured judgment and that he should not detect them all at once cannot be matter of surprise vaughan also has ably cleared the reformer from the charge of inconsistency or wavering he has fairly vindicated wycliffe from the long reiterated accusation of having concealed his opinions to escape the terrors of power upon the great and leading doctrine of the christian faith vaughan well observes that melancthon could have known but little of wycliffe's theological productions when he described him as ignorant of the righteousness of faith he adds if by that doctrine Melanchthon meant a reliance on the atonement of christ as the only and the certain medium for the guilty it is unquestionable that this truth was the favourite and the most efficient article in the faith of the english as well as in that of the german reformer it must be acknowledged that this tenant is more frequently adverted to in the writings of luther than in those of Wycliffe, and his notices respecting it are also frequently more definite because distinguishing more commonly between the acceptance of offenders in virtue of the saviour's death and the growth of devout affections in the heart under the influence of the divine spirit but that such was the design of the redeemer's sacrifice was not more distinctly apprehended by the professor of wittemberg than by the rector of Lutterworth, nor was this truth the source of a more permanent confidence with the one than with the other in the history of the reformation there are perhaps no two characters more nearly allied than wycliffe and luther both looked to the holy scriptures as the standard of truth for human instruction each learned much from the writings of augustine the boldness of the german professor was perhaps manifested at an earlier period of life and the situation in which he was placed more favourable to the permanency of the work wherein he was called to labour but wycliffe's sun shone brightest when setting and the decided manner in which he rejected the errors of popery respecting the sacrament while luther never was wholly freed from their fatal influence directed the efforts of his followers with undivided attention against the church of rome thus When the doctrines of the gospel, as taught by the German reformers, were made known in England, the soil was found well prepared. Many among the lower and middle classes were informed on these points, and already had received the truth. The bishop's registers prove how extensive were the results of Wycliffe's labours. The records of Bishop Longland's persecutions in 1521, see Fox, show their effect was not effervescent. This sketch of the life of Wycliffe may be closed with the public testimony given by the university of oxford touching the commendation of his great learning and good life unto all and singular the children of our holy mother the church to whom this present letter shall come the vice-chancellor of the university of oxford with the whole congregation of the masters wish perpetual health in the lord for so much as it is not commonly seen that the acts and monuments of valiant men nor the praise and merits of good men should be passed over and hidden with perpetual silence but that true report and fame should continually spread abroad the same in strange and far distant places both for the witness of the same and example of others for so much also as the provident discretion of man's nature being recompensed with cruelty hath devised and ordained this buckler and defence against such as do blaspheme and slander other men's doings that whensoever witness by word of mouth cannot be present the pen by writing may supply the same hereupon it followeth that the special good-will and care which we bear unto john wycliffe sometime child of this our university and professor of divinity moving and stirring our minds as his manners and conditions required no less with one mind voice and testimony we do witness all his conditions and doings throughout his whole life to have been most sincere and commendable whose honest manners and conditions, profoundness of learning, and most redolent renown and fame, we desire the more earnestly to be notified and known unto all faithful, for that we understand the maturity and rightness of his conversation, his diligent labours and travels, to tend to the praise of God, the help and safeguard of others, and the profit of the church. Wherefore we signify unto you by these presents, that his conversation, even from his youth upward, unto the time of his death, was so praiseworthy and honest that never at any time was there any note or spot of suspicion noised of him. But in his answering, reading, preaching, and determining, he behaved himself laudably and as a stout and valiant champion of the faith, vanquishing by the force of the scriptures all such who by their willful beggary blasphemed and slandered Christ's religion. Neither was this doctor convict of any heresy, either burned of our prelates after his burial god forbid that our prelates should have condemned a man of such honesty for a heretic who amongst all the rest of the university hath written in logic philosophy divinity morality and the speculative art without equal the knowledge of all which and singular things we do desire to testify and deliver forth to the intent that the fame and renown of the said doctor may be the more evident and had in reputation amongst them unto whose hands these present letters testimonial shall come. In witness whereof we have caused these our letters testimonial to be sealed with our common seal. Dated at Oxford in our Congregation House, October 1st, 1406. End of Some Account of the Life of John Wycliffe, D.D. D., Part 2